Thank you for downloading this podcast by Sheikh Ridwan Ibn Salim. For more podcasts, videos and articles, go to civilizations.org.uk. So, Yajuj Mahajuj, uh, obviously they're one of the major signs of the, um, before the end of time. And we're going to look first of all, what does the Quran say about Yajuj Mahajuj? So, these are one of the few of the major signs that are explicitly mentioned in the Quran, uh, in two surahs. Uh, the first surah is Surah Al-Kahf. Um, and then there's a brief mention in Surah Al-Anbiya. Surah Al-Kahf, obviously, I'm sure you're aware, is of special significance when we study the end times because it's specifically mentioned in uh, many hadith that Surah Al-Kahf is the protection from Dajjal, from the fitna of Dajjal. So therefore, uh, Surah Al-Kahf is a vital surah. So when we look at Surah Al-Kahf, we find um, it's uh, just out of, just a, a side note, you know, Surat al-Kaf is right in the center of the Quran. So it's like a cave, you know, in the center. It's right in the center, of, in the middle of the Quran. So, um, when we look at Surat al-Kaf, we find here the story of Dhul uh, Qarnayn and the mention of Yajuj and Majuj. So just briefly, these are the ayahs um, that uh, talk about this. Uh, they will ask thee about Dhulqarnayn. Say, I shall recite unto you a remembrance of him. Dhulqarnayn is obviously the man who is given this dominion by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, over the East and the West. And in other words, he was given a great power by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, there are uh, discussion amongst the Mufassirun, was he a prophet or was he uh, a righteous man? Uh, so that we're not, we don't know for sure uh, if he was a prophet or if he was uh, just a, a, a very righteous uh, man that Allah had given this dominion to. So Allah says then, we made him strong in the land and gave him to everything a road. We established him on the earth, we gave him power on the earth. And Sabab is a is a means, literally, rather than a road. It can be a road, because a road is a means to getting somewhere. Um, but literally Sabab is a means or a, um, uh, a so it could be a route or a road as well. Here they've translated it road. Um, he took a road until he reached the Maghrib Shams. He came to the place where the sun sets and he found it setting on a muddy spring and found a people 
and found some pe a people there. Allah said to him, O Dhul Qurnayn, either you, will, you can punish these people or you can show them mercy. What does Dhul Qurnayn say? So this is when he's traveled west, right, to the Maghrib bishops. He, he says, the person who does wrong, I'll just paraphrase, those who do wrong amongst these people, I will punish them. And then when they return back to Allah, He will punish them even the worst punishment. And those who are good and uh, who believe, we will reward them and we will make things easy for them. So this was the way that Zulkarnayn was dealing with these people in the West, you know. If they believe and do good works, we will reward them. If they are, if they are, if they are, uh, if they do uh, bad, then we will punish them. This is uh, just basic justice. Um, then, then he, then the Quran says, then he followed the road. So then he went a different direction. Until he reached the rising of the sun. So he went to the east. To the furthest east where the sun rises. Uh, and he found it rising on a people who Allah had not given any protection from the sun. Allah says, these people, He didn't give them anything to cover them, sitter, cover them from the heat of the sun. Right? Thus it was, and we knew all concerning Him. Then he followed another path. Now in this uh, occasion it doesn't say which direction. Yeah. Until he came between two mountains. He found on the uh, side of the mountains a certain people that could barely understand a word. They said, O Dhulqarnayn, Inna Yajuja wa Majuja Mufsiduna fil Ard. The Yajuj and Majuj people are causing corruption upon the land. Here he says, spoiling the land. Mufsidun, Mufsidun, if sad. <coughs> so, we will give you some tribute, we'll give you some, we'll pay you if you will help us to put a barrier to get rid of these people because they're completely, uh, they're completely corrupting people. You know, they're, they're destroying everything and so on. Dhulqarnay said, look, I don't want money from you. What Allah has given me is much more. Allah has already given him everything, dominion over the East and the West. So I don't ask you for any payment for this, I'll do it, you know, just help me, uh, give me uh, men and I will help to build a radam, in the Quran, radma, radam, a barrier between you and these people, the Yahudi and Majuj. Atuni Zubar al-Hadid, bring iron, bring me pieces of iron. Uh, so he then 
built a barrier of iron between the Sadafain, uh, it says here, cliffs. And the Sadaf uh, literally is like, you know when you have a shell and you open a shell, the two sides are called Sadaf. So you build a barrier between these two uh, cliffs, you could say, or, or mountain sides or something. Uh, and then he said blow, so when, when you when you melt iron, you use a furnace. So that was heated up until it became a fire. He said, bring me molten copper to pour on there. So then the iron barrier was covered with molten copper. So the Yajuj and Majuj people were unable to go over the barrier and they were unable to go pierce through the barrier. He said, this is a mercy from my Lord. When the promise of my Lord comes, he will destroy this barrier. The promise of my Lord is true. On that day, we will let some of them surge against others. That's what Allah says about when the barrier is destroyed. A very, very brief description is given. What will happen after the barrier is destroyed and Yajuj and Majuj are released? A very, very brief dis description is given. One of us have a sword. Then the trumpet will be blown. So Yom al Qiyamah. So there will be the, the, the when the promise of Allah comes, the barrier is destroyed. Yajuj and Majuj are released. All we know from the Quran is what will happen. Actually, we know something else from Surah Al-Anbiya, which we'll come back to. But in this ayah, all it says is, we will we will release them to surge, some of them to surge against others. Interestingly, not that the Yajuj and Majuj will surge against human beings on the planet, but they will actually be fighting each other. Some of them will be surging against others. Uh, obviously, I spent a long time trying to uh, research into the meaning of Yamuj <coughs> surge. You know? It's from the root word Moj, the same word as wave. You know how a wave, a tidal wave comes and crashes? Literally, that's Yamuj. Yeah? It's to surge like a wave. So they'll be, they'll be clashing like waves uh, against each other. And we'll come back later to how other descriptions about Gog and Magog, how they have massive wars. You know, they have massive wars against each other and against other human beings. Then the trumpet will be blown. In other words, obviously that will be the, the last day of the other. So then in Surah Al-Anbiya, we have these two ayahs. Um, once again, I, I don't have time today to go into the context within the surah, but that's obviously something very important for people to look into. How do these two ayahs fit into the actual surah itself? Uh, 
But what uh, Surah, uh, Surah, uh, Surah 95 and 96 in Surah Al-Anbiya, we have the following. وَحَرَامٌ عَلَىٰ قَرْيَةٍ أَحْلَكْنَاهَا أَنَّهُمْ لَا يَرْجِعُونَ It is haram, it is forbidden. Here it says a ban. It is forbidden upon a town which we have destroyed that they will ever return to that town. حَتَّى إِذَا فُتِحَتْ يَأْجُوجُ وَمَأْجُوجُ وَهُمْ مِنْ كُلِّ هَدَبٍ يَنْسِلُونَ Until Yajuj and Majuj, Gog and Magog are released and they descend from every hill. Every hill. Hadab is literally any elevated place on the earth. is a hill translated here. Hadab is any elevated place. In other words, the Yajuj and Majuj will be everywhere. They will spread around the whole world. Then the true promise will draw nigh. Okay. So we're going to come back to these ayahs later on to analyze them in more depth. But, but before we go into that, I want you to have a quick survey of what does uh, some of the hadith mention about Yajuj and Majuj, just so that we're aware before we go into further study. Um, I've just picked uh, Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim here for the obvious reason that these are the most uh, these books have got the most stringent criteria before they include a hadith. Um, all of the ulama agree upon that, you know. Because once again, as we saw with the beast, you can get many, many narrations, you know, some are weak, some are very weak, some are stronger, some are very strong. And uh, that can, people can, like if, for example, if you pick up Ibn Kathir book, that's quite well known, translated into English, you know, Signs of the Day of Judgment, it's in all the Islamic bookshops. People have probably read it. Um, you know, you, you may end up with some confusion because Ibn Kathir will bring hadith from many different sources, some are stronger, some are weaker. And as lay people, we won't know how to understand, you know, where it's different then. You'll read so much different things that you just may end up in uh, more confusion. So it is very important to, first of all, go to the Quran. The Quran is obviously, even though the information in there may be succinct, it's going to be the most valuable information that we have. And then we go to the Hadith, which are the most strongest, which we can have most... Uh, confidence and reliability with words. Uh, and Bukhari and Muslim are obviously the ones that are... So if if Bukhari has, you know, he's got a chapter, Yajuj and Majuj. So he's only going to bring the hadith about Yajuj and Majuj, which he believes are the really strong, reliable. He knows the others, he knows all of the others. Don't forget Imam Bukhari uh, probably memorized somewhere around 500,000 or more hadith he had in his own memory and collection but he only put a few thousand into the about 9,000 into the Sahih and about only about 1,500 if you take away repetition so from all those hundreds of thousands he's bought these very few that are the most reliable information we have about Yajuj and Majuj 
from the Prophet right? So bear that in mind. Um, so this is the first hadith. The Prophet said, the people will continue performing Hajj and Umrah even after the appearance of Yajuj and Majuj. And then Shoba adds an extra point. The Day of Judgment will not be established until the Hajj is abandoned. Second hadith. Oh, sorry. Second hadith. Zainab bin Jahash, the wife of the Prophet وسلم, said, one, one day the Prophet وسلم, came to her in a state of fear and said, none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. Woe to the Arabs from a danger that has come near. An opening has been made in the wall of Gog and Magog like this. And he made a circle with his thumb and his index finger. Zainab bint Jahash said, O oh Allah's Apostle, shall we be destroyed even though there are pious persons among us? He said, yes, when the evil will predominate. So even if there are still pious people, when the bad people predominate or evil and wrongdoing and sin predominates, then the people can be destroyed. The reason why she was asking is because when Allah's punishment comes <coughs> upon a people, it doesn't spare anyone. It doesn't matter if you're righteous or unrighteous, you're all destroyed. That's just the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, if he wanted, he could only destroy some people, but not others. But it's the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When his punishment comes, it's complete. That's why either those people have to leave, like with loot, he had to leave that town before the punishment comes. Uh, or, or so, you know, or Allah's punishment is delayed, you know, for those people. Abu Huraira narrates that Allah has made an opening in the wall of Yajuj or Majuj, and once again he made the symbol of the hole. So, as we will see later, uh, what we're going to be arguing is that the the barrier has already been destroyed. The barrier has already been breached by Yajuj and Majuj. And um, these are the proofs uh, for that. Yeah? Now this is a long hadith uh, which we're just going to sort of summarize. Um, this hadith is about on the Day of Judgment when Allah sends people into the hellfire. So here from every 1000 take out 999. So when Allah is sending people to the hellfire, He says from every 1,000, from every 1,000 human beings, 999 will go into the hellfire. Only one from a thousand, in, in other words, goes to Jannah. So this is where the Sahaba became very concerned. The Sahaba became very fearful. They said, from every 1,000 human beings, only one gets to Jannah, we're doomed, we're doomed. And then, this is when the Prophet وسلم, said, um, Rejoice with glad tidings, one person will be from you, and 1,000 will be from Yajuj and Majuj. In other words, a vast number of people are going to be from the people of Gog and Magog. 
And this is also one of the major proofs that Gog and Magog are human beings from these hadith that talk about, and as you see, they come in multiple chains of narration. That on the day of judgment, the, the people that go into the hellfire, the majority of them actually will be from the Yajud and Majud people. Then Imam Bukhari narrates again from Zainab bin Jahash the same hadith we had before. Why is he narrating it again, the same hadith? Because he's bringing it from a different chain of narrators. So often when you read uh, Bukhari, he brings the same hadith in different places. Sometimes he does this because of different fiqh points that you can take from the hadith. So he brings it in different chapters. But if you look at the isnad, normally he'll bring a different isnad as well. So he's killing two birds with one stone. He's showing the different ahkam or, or, or um, the different uh, rulings we can take from the hadith. But at the same time he's bringing different chains of narrators to show you that the hadith is very strong. So the same hadith he brings with different isnads. Uh, when Zainab, the wife of the Prophet said, Today a breach or a hole has been made in the barrier of Gog and Magog. Yeah. This is what Sheikh Imran Hussain argues. That it doesn't necessarily mean that's a size, that's like just a, it's just indicating a hole. Yeah. There's a hole made in that barrier. Uh, once again, from Ibn Abbas. So you see how Bukhari is bringing different chains, different Sahaba who are narrating the same thing. That the, 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 there's been a hole, there's been a breach in the barrier of Yajuj and Majuj. Uh, then he brings from Abu Sa'id al Khudri, another famous uh, narrator. Um, and this is the another narration about the 999, yeah, where the Prophet said that. Most of them will be from Yajuj and Majuj. Good news is that 1,000 will be from Gog and Magog. Next hadith we have. So these are literally, I'll, I'll put the whole chapter of Gog and Magog from Bukhari and Muslim. Yeah? So I haven't been picking and choosing or anything like that. Just to show you that these Imams, these are the hadith from all the thousands that they thought were the strongest on this subject. Right? Once again, he brings another narration, another chain of narration from Zainab Ibn uh, Jahash. Today, a breach has been made in the barrier of Gog and Magog, like this. This is the correct uh, translation. And then again, the same hadith uh, by another narration. So the purpose of bringing the narration is to show you that there's multiple narrators. It's not just come from one person, from one person, from one person. This has come through many people from Zainab and even from other Sahaba as well. Okay, and then again, same, but this time from Abu Huraira, another chain. A hole has been opened in the barrier of God and my God. Uh, and then a different narration here. An important hadith which also comes through different chains. Uh, in this hadith, Jabir narrates that 
Gog and Magog would walk until they reached the mountain of Al-Khamar. It is a mountain of Beit Al-Maqdis in Jerusalem. And they would say, we have killed those who are upon the earth. Let us now kill those who are in the sky. And they would throw their arrows towards the sky and the arrows would return to them besmeared with blood. And in the narration of Ibn Hajar, I have sent such persons that none would dare fight against them. Allah says that. I have sent such persons that no one can fight against these people, the Gog and Magog. Uh, the same hadith from Zainab through another chain. And again, so this is now Sahih Muslim we're going into. This is the last hadith from Bukhari. So here we've gone into Sahih Muslim now. First hadith. So Sahih Muslim, he also brings the hadith of Zainab bint Jahash. Uh, another narration from Zainab. And then he brings from Abu Hurairah as well, the one with the barrier has been breached. And then he brings a hadith from Hudayfa ibn Sayyid Shafari. He said, uh, when Allah's Messenger came to them, he said to them, what are you talking about? The Sahaba said, we were talking about the last hour. And the Prophet said to them, it will not come until you see ten signs. And he made mention of the signs, the major signs. The smoke, the jal, the beast, the rising of the sun from the west, the descent of Isa alayhi salam, Yajuj and Majuj, and landslides in three places, one in the east, one in the west, one in Arabia, at the end of which fire would burn forth from Yemen. These ten signs are not given in order here, by the way. Uh, then he brings the next narration of uh, similar. Uh, there were the ten signs are mentioned by the Prophet And then, uh, uh, this is a very long hadith, uh, obviously sorry you can't read that, but uh, I'm just going to once again summarize it. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this hadith. It is an important hadith, because this, this gives somewhat of a sequence of some of the major signs. So this is the hadith where we have uh, about Dajjal, when he will come for 40 days. We've already done the Dajjal class, so we won't repeat that again. Um, but the important thing here is how, um, you know, Dajjal will be performing these miracles, so-called miracles that will seem like miracles. He will then, uh, eventually, as you know, Dajjal, will be killed by Prophet Isa right? Prophet Isa will descend upon the white minaret on the eastern side of Damascus, it says here. So in Damascus, if you go to the Grand Umayyad Masjid in Damascus, uh, there is a minaret where people believe that that is where Prophet Isa will descend. There are also other opinions that it will actually be in Jerusalem that he will descend in a masjid in Jerusalem. So, there's two opinions amongst the ulama. Uh, in this narration it mentions Damascus. Um, anyhow, when uh, Isa al-Islam descends, he will then put an end to the Jal who will be 
a tyrannical world ruler right? who will have an army of Jews. So Isa will kill him and this is when Allah will send the Yajuj and Majuj against Prophet Isa and the believers that are with Prophet Isa and the and, and uh, Prophet Isa and the Muslims that are with him will be unable to fight uh, the Yajuj and Majuj because of their because of their strength. Allah will send such a people that no one has the strength to defeat except Allah Himself. So eventually, as this hadith says, Isa will then make this special supplication, a special dua that he has been given that will be guaranteed to be accepted. And he will make dua for Allah to uh, defeat the Yajuj and Majuj. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send these insects or tiny creatures that will infect uh, these people and there will be mass, there will be mass uh, death of them through Allah's punishment. And after the Yajuj and Majuj are wiped out, um, I'm not going to go into every detail of the hadith, then there will be a phase where Prophet Isa will live upon the earth in a right, as a righteous ruler and there will be a lot of peace and prosperity and he will govern according to the Sharia of uh, Sayyidina Muhammad he will not bring a different teaching or a different religion he will govern according to the Quran and the Sharia of, uh, of Islam and eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send the wind there will be a certain wind and all the believers who smell that uh, wind will be a fragrance. They will die very peacefully. Um, so then, that is how Allah will end uh, Prophet Isa Islam and all of the believers on the earth. They will be taken away, their souls will be taken away by this fragrant breeze. And only disbelievers will remain upon the earth after that time until the Day of Judgment. Only disbelievers. So in the narration it says they'll be committing fornication and living like animals until the trumpet is blown. This is why last time when we talked about the beast, according to this narration, it wouldn't make sense that the beast comes after Prophet Isa Islam and the Ajuj and Majuj. Because after Prophet Isa Islam, there will be only disbelievers upon the earth until the Day of Judgment. And we know when the beast comes, it will mock people, mu'min and kafir, believer and disbeliever. So there must be, the beast must come at a time when there are believers upon the earth. And then he brings the hadith that we saw before about Bayt al-Maqdis, that the Yajuj and Majuj will go to Jerusalem. And then they will say, we have, we have killed all those who are upon the earth, let us now turn towards the heaven. I have sent such persons that none would dare to fight against them, or none can defeat them. So those are the hadith that are in Bukhari and Muslim. So 
going through the ayat of Quran uh, regarding Ajuja Majuja, we'll go through the hadith that are in the two strongest books of hadith. So now we're going to go to the analysis um, of this thing. Um, and I'm going to present it to you today in the journey that I went through. Uh, I thought that might be the most uh, straightforward, interesting way to do that. I'm taking you back now to when I was in Syria doing my studies. And one of the things I, for a long time, was thinking about and interested in reading about was this um, command, the command of jihad in the Quran. Because the Quran has got a very strong, uh, a strong command for believers to do jihad. I'm talking about the military jihad now. Uh, oh, you who believe when you meet those who disbelieve in battle, turn not your backs to them. Whoever on that day turns his back to them, unless it is a strategy of the battle, or they are retreating to join another force, a Muslim force. So they're not fleeing, you know, from the battlefield, they're going back to regroup or join other forces to rejoin the battle. But if you just flee from the battlefield, from the disbelievers, he truly hath incurred wrath from Allah and his habitation will be held, a hapless journey's end. So we are forbidden from running from the battlefield in this ayah without any like restriction, you know. So that was something, you know, uh, I used to think about. And then in the further ayahs, further down in the same surah, Surah Al-Anfal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts some restrictions on that, on that prohibition. So the prohibition to run from the battlefield, Allah puts some sort of restriction on that. And he does it in two ayahs, interestingly. The first ayah, he says, if there are 20 Muslims, I'm just giving the meaning, you can see the translation there. If there are 20 Muslims, uh, they can defeat 200 disbelievers. And if there are a hundred Muslims, they can defeat one thousand. Um, sorry, twenty will defeat two hundred, and a hundred will defeat one thousand. In other words, if you're outnumbered, how many? One to ten. If you're outnumbered even ten times to one, you can defeat them. That's Allah's promise in the Quran. If you have if you are patient and persevering, if you have sabr, Allah will make you defeat these people. But then the next ayah is interesting. He says, Allah has lightened your load. For he knows that there is a weakness in you. The believers. So what's the lightening? He says, if there are 100 believers, they can defeat 200 if there are 1,000, they can defeat 2,000, so much less, 2 to 1. Now when the Sahaba were going into battle, you can see this from the Seerah, they were going on the first ayah. <laughs> Even after the Prophet if you read the battles, 
of like Khalid ibn al-Walid. You can see they they were always thinking, as long as they're not over ten, you know, they, even if there's ten times more, we can defeat them. But you know, this is for 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 the likes of weak people like us, right? That Allah's given us, you know, if 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 you if there's over double of their number, you could run, you can leave the battlefield. You're no longer forbidden to flee or give you know, surrender, in other words. But if there's if there's if there's less than double, you have to fight. You have to fight. You have no excuse. So the reason why I was thinking about this a lot was, obviously, in today's day and age, we've got uh, high advanced weaponry, bombs, missiles. And when I spoke to Shayyukh and things like that about you know the, some of the jihad that were going on in those days in Palestine, Kashmir, and things like that, and when Afghanistan was invaded, etc. You know, the, the ulama, the, you know, the sheikhs that I was speaking, they'll say, look, they, they, don't, they don't want people to come there to fight for them because they've got numbers. The Muslims in those places have got a lot of numbers. They've got people. But they don't have weapons. They don't have the weapons. And in fact, the people who are dis- in- invading them and destroying them have got less numbers than them. But they've got the far advanced uh, weaponry. So this is something that I thought, you know, how does this then, you know, does it apply in this day and age to weaponry? But then, uh, one day I came across in uh, in a famous book by Sarakhsi, the Mabsud. Uh Imam Sarakhsi is one of the uh, leading uh, Hanafi uh, scholars of the early, quite early period, Abbasid period. Uh, and he wrote uh, a very famous encyclopedic work called the Mabsud. And I found in the Mabsud that he actually uh, directly addresses this issue. And he actually says very clearly that if the enemy is has overwhelming superiority in weaponry, that would also apply then as a qiyas, as an analogy from the ayah. Because the ayah only talks about numbers being doubled. But he says this is the same principle would apply, and in that case, the Muslim do not have to fight; they can surrender. So this led me to understanding, or coming to my own conclusion, that talking about jihad against countries like America is pointless, because there's absolutely no, not even near parity in the weaponry. I mean, Pakistan now is the only Muslim country that has got a nuclear weapon. You know, but all these other countries, they, they can't, how can you fight? Uh, when they, they're fighting you by not even using all their force. They're fighting you by not even using all the weapons that they have. I mean, that's the situation you're in. The, someone, one of my students, um, one day, you know, came up to me and said, Oh, have you heard of Sheikh Imran Hussein? Um, I said, No, I've never heard of him. This is going back about. Before I wrote the paper on the Jews and my Jews, must be about 10 years back. I've never come across him. He said, oh, you should read some of his stuff. Uh, he's on YouTube and everything as well. Uh, he gave me a couple of his books. I had a quick flick through, but I didn't really think much of it. 
I just thought, you know, we could, one of these people that talks about you know, Dugan, my Dugan, Dajjal, and all that, getting a lot of viewers. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any particular um, thing about that. But uh, from time to time, I just, because the books were there, I just was flicking through a couple of pages here and there, you know. I can't remember, maybe I watched a part of a video or something. But anyway, the thing that, that, that was said was, uh, the thing that came across to me very strongly was two things, you know. He, he said, you know, um, the barrier's already been broken. Gog and Magog are Western civilization, you know. That have, have, have run over, overrun the world, you know, they've taken <coughs> over the world, just as the Quran predicted. And there are people, as Allah says, I will send forth some people that no one will be able to defeat. So that's why it was all connecting back to that whole thing, conclusion that I'd come to myself about uh, America and the weaponry and all of that stuff. I mean, this is what I was hearing. And it, I, I didn't, obviously at first I didn't just say, oh yeah, that's true. I was like, well, that's interesting. But I left it. I just buried it. I didn't, for probably a good few months, maybe a year, I didn't think, do anything further with that. I just thought it sort of makes sense in a way, you know. But uh, obviously, a lot of other things weren't making sense because you had Jews, the barrier, they're going to come out after Prophet Isa al-Islam fight. If they've come out, where's Prophet Isa al-Islam, for example? You know, going back to the other hadith. So there was, there was it was just something I was thinking about. I, I've mentioned this before, Sheikh Hamza, obviously, you know, he said himself, this is this is an area that I've really gone into, the Akhir al-Zaman, the eschatology or the signs of the last day. And, and in one one time he said, you know, I've, I've, I've really thought and thought about uh, Yajuj and Majuj. So someone asked him, you know, where's Yajuj and Majuj, where's the barrier? And he said, I've thought and thought a lot, but I, I've not been able to come to any answer to that particular issue. So when people, I mean, some people often they say, for example, the Great Wall of China, maybe it's the Great Wall of China, you know. Now the Chinese are coming out. Maybe they're going to take over America. They're going to so that they'll be released from the from the Great Wall. Is you know, so people have all sorts of theories. Um, but there is a valid question. You know, nowadays in this age of modern satellites, we, we can see the globe. Where is the barrier? Where are these people? Are they in some sort of hidden well underground where we can't see them? If they are still behind a barrier, which is what most people believe today. Right? If they're still there, trapped behind the barrier, where is it? Where are they? Why can't we see them on the satellites? Or things? I mean, that doesn't add up to me, but these are the sort of things people come out with, you know? They're trying to figure out where is the, that wall, where is the barrier, you know? But yeah, so, this is when I sort of heard Sheikh Imran saying Gog and Magog are the Europeans, white Europeans who colonized colonial empires, and then it's America, you know, the same people. Uh, they've created this white world order. I don't really like, you know, we don't, we're not racist people or anything, but you, you know, I can be in danger of getting into racism, but we need to be careful. Um, they, they are the, uh, you know, but they, they are a very multi-ethnic group as well, you know. So I don't, personally, I don't believe it's a genetic race thing. I just want to make that clear. I believe they are a civilization, a people. You know, 
they have a worldview. Uh, people of any race can join that civilization, and it's become globalized, you know. So anyone who joins their way of beliefs, ways of thinking, dress, everything, they become part of the Yajurian Majud. And I think for me that makes sense because remember the hadith about 1,000 from every human beings. 1,000 to 1 will be Yajurian Majud. And we know today, living on the earth today, there's about 7 billion. There's more human beings on the earth today than if you add up all human beings in the whole of history. So if you add up all human beings from Adam to before this time, there's much less in number than what is alive today on this planet. So that then makes sense that the Yahudja Majud will be 1000 and the people of Jannah will be only one. This is a massive number of people living today and they've come under the world order, the Yahudja Majud world order. I, 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 can't, I mean, I cannot believe it's a race thing because many of that race can become Muslims as well. If Yajuja Majuja are human beings, a human being can become a Muslim. You see what I mean? So it's not a race thing, it should never become a race thing. And it's not a racist thing, it's a civilization. You know? It's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a civilization with a world view and a culture. So over time, I'm talking about months now, you know, uh, this was buried in my head, this idea of Yadudim Majud, Western Sir. It just, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense, you know. Um, and uh, Imam uh, Hussein, Imran Hussein, he, he brings a quote from Iqbal. Allama Iqbal has got a poem where he has these verses and he says the following. With cleverness slash wisdom, and prudence, this uproar, this chaos cannot be delayed. Because وَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ بِهِ تَسْتَعْجِلُونَ Quoting the ayah of Quran, that the disbelievers, they want you, they, they said to the Prophet well, bring the punishment on us if you dare. وَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ بِهِ تَسْتَعْجِلُونَ You want to, you want to bring this, you know, you're saying you want to bring the punishment of Allah quickly? Yajuj and Majuj, Gog and Magog all have been released. The Muslim eye will see the meaning of Yansilun. Wahum min kulli hadabin Yansilun. They will come down from every hilltop. Yansilun is come down. The word. So you bought that word from the eye of Quran about uh, Yajuj and Majuj. So this was Alama Iqbal. Um, also seems to be suggesting here that Gog and Magog have been released. <coughs> if we look at the hadith once again, this is the key hadith. As you saw, in Bukhari and Muslim, this was the predominant hadith about Gog and Magog. Again and again, different chains. That the Zainab ibn, ibn Jahash, the wife of the Prophet said, Today, and this was really interesting, she said the Prophet ﷺ came to her in a state of fear. Fear is not a state of, of, of the Prophet. The Prophet ﷺ only feels fear when, because the Yajuja Mahjujas represent the punishment of Allah, you see. 
they represent the punishment and anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when they are released upon the people. So that's why he was fuzzer, you know. And he said, today, uh, this Futiha al-Yawm, Radmu, Yajud, Mamajud, we've got the Arabic there, right? Futiha al-Yawm, today it's been opened. The barrier of Yajud and Majud has been opened. And he made that symbol. So this was a key hadith which uh, Imran Hussein was using to say, look, the barrier was broken in the lifetime of the Prophet so, um, I have refrained here from saying that this hadith is mutawatir because I don't know if it is or not, but all I've said is even within Bukhari and Muslim we can see it's come from multiple chains. So, it's if it's not mutawatir, it's extremely close to that certainty, you know. Um, an interesting thing happened following from that. One day I was I wanted to read more about Yajuj and Majuj because this thing was in my head now about the white world order and everything. So I, I thought to myself, let me read some of the commentaries on the hadith about Yajuj and Majuj. So I went on to my, um, you know, my digital library and I, I wanted to read the commentary Fatful Bari, which is the most famous commentary in Bukhari by uh, Ibn Hajar al Asqalani, uh, considered to be the uh, best uh, and most comprehensive uh, commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari. So thought, let me see what Ibn Hajar says in uh, relation to the hadith about Yajuj and Majuj. But by mistake, instead of pressing Fatul Bari, I pressed on Faidul Bari, which is a commentary on Bukhari by Imam Anwar Shah Kashmiri, a much later scholar, uh, one of our more recent scholars of the, uh, died in 1933. But one of the really, one of the top uh, uh, um, respected ulama of the Indian subcontinent of his time. And he has this commentary which is very well known, Faidul Bari on Bukhari. So I felt afterwards this is Qadar Allah because, you know, it's just one of those things that doesn't happen by coincidence. Because when, I, when you open Fadul Bari, in his commentary on the Yajuj and Majuj hadith, he also says exactly the same thing that Sheikh Imran was saying. He says that the barrier was broken uh, during the lifetime of the Prophet As is proven by those hadith of Zainab bin Jahash and others. So Imam Anwar Shah is clearly a very respected scholar. Uh, a, a world famous scholar of Al Sunnah. He has got, um, he's obviously come before Sheikh Imran Hussein with this exact same conclusion on the, the barrier being broken. And he specifically says that these are the British and the Russians. Because in those days, don't forget, the British and the Russian empires were the two great world powers that are taken over between them uh, most of the world. So he said these are, uh, he says it would not be far-fetched to say that these are Britain and Russia and these people were released during the lifetime of the Prophet So I was like, subhanAllah, 
you know. And he specifically addresses some of the, because he's a hadith master, don't forget. So he brings some of the other hadith that people may have come across that seem to contradict this conclusion. So for example, in Tirmidhi, there's a hadith that many people know about, in which every day Yajuj and Majuj are digging through the barrier, until they come almost to breach the barrier, and then it becomes night time, and then they say, let's go. And they come back the next day, but then Allah has sealed up the barrier again, so they start from scratch. Yeah, you've heard of the hadith? So Imam Anwar Shah, he says this hadith, he basically dismisses this hadith. Why? Because he says we've got much stronger hadith, which is the hadith mentioned before, where the Prophet said that that it's been breached. That's directly contradicting the other hadith in Tirmidhi, isn't it? You can't have both ways, that they almost breach it, but then it's covered every day. Until Allah, he said it's been breached now, they're out, um, not they're out, but he said it's been breached, so he says in a case like this, we have to take, there's no way to that they both can be correct, so we have to take the stronger evidence, he discusses it further, uh, Ibn Kathir deems this narration weak, Abu Huraira sometimes says it's from the Prophet and sometimes he says it's from Kaab, so it's not even always attributed to the Prophet and some people argue that it's actually not from the Prophet. So, uh, this is how he dismisses the hadith from Tirmidhi. So then I started thinking, look, a lot of this is making sense to me now. Dajjal is coming, we can see that. When Prophet Isa Islam kills Dajjal and the army that are with him, this is when the Yajuj Majuj, which is America, and these Western powers, will then come in full force against uh, Prophet Isa Islam and the believers that are with him. Because he's killed their leader, the John. Now, further on, Sheikh Ibrahim Hussain argues that there are indications that there is a close relationship between the Yajuj and Majuj and the Dajjal. And this tafsir of this ayah, this really, this really like mind boggled me, you know, when I read this first time from in Chekhamon, the same book. I was absolutely astounded. Yeah. This is the hadith, uh, this is the ayah in, ayahs in Surah Al-Anbiya that we mentioned before about Yajuj and Majuj. Remember it says, وَحَرَامٌ عَلَىٰ قَرْيَةٍ أَحْلَقْنَاهَا أَنَّهُمْ لَا يَرْجِعُونَ It is haram, it is forbidden upon a town that we have destroyed that they cannot return. It is forbidden that they will ever return. Until Yajuj and Majuj are released and they come down from every uh, elevated place or every hill. Now obviously whenever I had read this ayah until that time, the way I had read it and the way that all of us mostly read it is that if Allah ever destroys any town, people can never return to that town until the Day of Judgment really. Yeah? Does that make sense? 
That's how it's normally understood. But there's a big problem with that understanding. Because the next ayah says, Hatta idha futi They cannot return until Yajuj and Majuj are released, but Yajuj and Majuj are released before uh, Yom al Qiyamah. So, how some of the Mufassirun then uh, understood that to try to make sense of that? They say, How does that make sense? That if Allah has destroyed a township, they can never return until Yajuj. We have to take this as meaning not literally when Yajuj and Majuj are released, we have to take it as, as meaning symbolically. In other words, Yajuj and Majuj are a symbol of the last day. So when Allah says, hey, until Yajuj and Majuj are released, what he actually means is the Day of Judgment. In, in a symbolic way. You put a town. Yeah. Does that refer to many towns or one town? But this, is the, this is the problem. In Arabic, it can refer to either way. Yeah. It can mean either thing. Because in Arabic, it just says Qariyakin. Uh, indefinite. There's no Al, so it's not the town. It can either mean a town, or in the context, it could mean any town. In the Arabic, you know, it could mean a town, or it could be... But, because when we say a town, we can mean any town. If I give you a pencil, don't ever give it to me back. In other words, if I give you any pencil, don't ever give it back. I'm not talking about a particular pencil, am I? So, that's how you would, I, I would naturally read it. Yeah? But what, what Imran Hussain said here, yeah. He said, the Qariya here is Jerusalem. It's not any town, it's a particular town. Jerusalem. And, as he pointed out himself, Jerusalem is referred to as a town in another ayah of Quran. In Surah Al-Baqarah. أَوْ كَالَّذِي مَرَّ عَلَىٰ قَرِيَةٍ وَهِيَ خَاوِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ عُرُوشِهَا When he passed by a town which was in ruins, and this is referring back to one of the prophets, uh, and when he was passing by Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is referred to as Qariyat in a town in this ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah. So there was a precedent for it in the Quran itself, you see. So it says, Haramun ala Qariyatin. It is forbidden upon a town, Jerusalem, that we have destroyed, that they will never return. The people who were destroyed, the Jews will never return to Jerusalem until Yajuj and Majuj are released. And they come down from every place. In other words, when they have established their world rule, only then will those people return to Jerusalem, the Jews. Subhanallah. Because that is what happened, isn't it? When these people uh, uh, established their world rule, when the Ottoman Empire was destroyed, the final Muslim power, that's when the Jews then were returned to Jerusalem after centuries, after over a thousand years. We're going to have a quick look at the historical. So, this is the history. It was the Romans in 70, <coughs> the Romans in 70 CE who destroyed the temple and expelled the Jews. They were literally, I mean, they were expelled, they were forbidden at that time. That was a man. 
that they cannot return, they cannot live in uh, Jerusalem. This was obviously the second destruction of the temple, but we don't need to go into that now. Um, it's interesting though, you know, the Romans are very important in the Quran. The Quran mentioned, there's a South Surah. So the Romans are the ones who surrounded the city and they basically destroyed the Jews in the year 70. Um, the Jews were a subject people to the Romans anyway, but they had been rebelling and things like that. So the Romans got fed up of them and they basically uh, destroyed the temple, chucked them out of the city. And since that time, the Jews were scattered around the world. The diaspora, you know, the Jewish diaspora, it was called, never had a homeland of their own. And they were only returned by the British Empire after the defeat of the Ottomans. So this was then beginning to um, come into place for me anyway. Uh, I still didn't understand about the barrier, you know. And Imran Hussein was talking about, you know, this, what he calls this mysterious European obsession with Jerusalem, which goes all the way back to the Crusades. <coughs> Yeah? All the way back to the birth, if you remember back to the history course, you know, that Europe, Europe actually defines itself, it is actually born during the Crusades, that is the birth of Europe, Western Europe as a, a civilization. At that time it was a Roman Catholic civilization in Western Europe. Um, so the Crusades were all about capturing Jerusalem, they were just had this almost like a, a, a very, very strong desire, you know, that they need Jerusalem. And Imran Hussein was saying, why, you know, because Christians had been going to Jerusalem for many centuries before that. There were many Christians living in Jerusalem under the Muslim empires. Uh, there were many other Christian communities, but these certain European, Western Europeans, the Roman Catholic Europeans, they suddenly seem to have this complete crazy obsession uh, with getting Jerusalem. Um, so anyway, to summarize so far, behind the iron barrier built by Dulkarnain, the barrier is destroyed during the lifetime of the Prophet and they are released. They assimilate, and somehow these Yajujah Mojud, when they're released, they assimilate and infiltrate European, Western European countries and ever since that time they've become obsessed with Jerusalem what Sheikh Ibrahim is saying, you know, he's got a colourful language this mysterious and whatever obsession with the Holy Land uh, and eventually after many centuries when this Western European people after literally, you know, centuries they eventually do form uh, a world rule, uh, they will then return the Jews to the Holy Land. So some of the hadiths that link up Yajujah Majud with Jerusalem as well, we saw that before. Yeah, that was in Sahih Muslim. That they will go towards Beit al-Maqdis specifically. Um, I think it's interesting how the hadiths also mention that when they have killed or uh, taken over all the people of the earth, they will turn towards the heaven. 
they will become such a global power that we've got nothing else to do on this earth let's turn towards the heaven which is exactly what we see uh, from western civilization now they're obsessed with getting to the moon getting to mars they, they're finished here you know they're finished i personally think that's just remember these are sahaba narrating according to their understanding at the time so I, I'm not taking everything here literally, but I'm just looking at the themes and the meanings. And this is something that's come in the, if you remember, in, the, in several of the hadith, that when they've completed their domination of the earth, they will turn towards the heaven and try to shoot arrows. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to penetrate and try to let's spread our dominion further towards the heaven as well. And, 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 and also that thing that, you know, these are going to be a people that Allah releases that no one can defeat. Since 1066, the Norman conquest of Britain, this country has never been defeated. Now, when we talk about who were these original Yaguj and Majud, if we say they were released during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, but who were they, where did they, how did they get into Western Europe, right? So Imran will say, and even if you go back to Ahmed Thompson's book, Dajjal, original Dajjal, they both uh, have this theory that they could have been the Khazars. The Khazars. The Khazars were a Turkic tribe that lived around the Caucasus region. The Caucasus mountains are between the, uh, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Uh, just above uh, Syria and below Turkey, yeah, that, that region there, Russia and all these countries around there. The Khazars lived there around about the early time of Islam. So they were there during the early caliphates. And they converted into Judaism for political reasons. They actually had Christian power on one side and the Muslims on the other side. And the, the chief of the Khazars actually decided to become Jewish as a way to... Yes, exactly. So for political reasons he converted to Judaism and all of the, the tribe converted to Judaism. And over centuries they gradually moved west into Eastern Europe and they became known as the Ashkenazi Jews as opposed to the Sephardic Jews, which were the Jewish communities in Spain. Um, and they eventually moved more and more west into Germany, Britain, France, and into European society. They became, they, a lot of them became the bankers, uh, the Rothschilds, or probably descended from Ashkenazi Jews, um, and so on. So this is a theory, you know, that these are the Yajuj and Majuj, they were trapped. There must have been some sort of wall in the, in the Caucasus mountain region, which they were trapped behind. And then during the lifetime of the Prophet they were released. And then that's the rest of it is how they then infiltrated into Europe. They became part of the European society and so on. To me that didn't quite make sense, because if you read the history of the Khazars, plus also they were there before the Prophet but there was no, even if there was a barrier in the Caucasus, 
they could easily move the other way, you know. <laughs> so you have to, you can't be trapped. Uh, unless they were trapped in, I don't know, some sort of, I don't know, it just didn't, didn't seem to add up completely. Although it was an interesting theory. But for me, that wasn't quite making sense. Because uh, they also had relations with other people as well. Anyway, so then one day I was reading this book, Christopher Walker, in one of the reading from our history course. And Christopher Walker, when he was in the chapter about the Crusades, I came across this particular passage. And I've highlighted some bits there. But he was talking about why why did the Europe, Western Europeans suddenly become obsessed with Jerusalem and the Crusades? Because he, he recognized this was a strange thing, you know. For nearly 300 years, the whole of Western Europe, they were completely obsessed about doing these Crusades and going to Jerusalem, which was really... Bit bizarre, you know. Uh, and before that, they had been doing peaceful pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a long time. Uh, and you know, there is that. Obviously, sometimes people mention this thing about a certain caliph who was, certain, you know, but that was a very short thing, and historians don't really buy that anymore. That for centuries, a one little incident could have, you know. So he says, you know, there were certain factors that led to the Crusades at that time in Western Europe. And one of these, one of the major factors was the coming of these people, the Normans. Right? So he literally says a number of elements changed the attitude in Western Europe from peaceful pilgrimage to violent conquest of the Holy Land. The first was the coming of the Normans. The French. The Normans. They were French. These people, originally from Scandinavia, had within two generations remodeled itself as a dominant force within the society of Europe. So these are people that have come into Europe, originally from Scandinavia, they have become a dominant force within the society of Europe, and these people are very assertive, dictatorial, militant, controlling, sometimes content to act as mercenaries, in other words, if they can't get control for themselves, they'll be happy to be mercenaries for someone else. But they're very militant, you know. <coughs> they liked social hierarchies. They're not, you know, they, 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 they liked having, uh, uh, you know, slaves and all these things. <coughs> if they could not be dominant, they would submit. But they would always want to be engaged in warfare. Wherever necessary, they would get the blessing of the Pope. But where necessary, they didn't care if they were excommunicated. In other words, if, if it suits them, their military purpose, they would you know, get the blessings of the Pope. But if the Pope is not going along with their uh, plans, they would be, you know, forget that. So, in other words, they were not deeply religious believers. They were, they were using faith you know, according to their own ends of power. Uh, the Pope gives William the Conqueror his blessing to invade Britain, because in return, William the Conqueror recognizes him as the Pope. So for the Pope, this is also good. So that type of thing, they were using each other. Uh, so this, what historians describe as a symbiosis between the Normans and the papacy. And the invasion of England, uh, William the Conqueror had a flag with a red cross, the same flag that was used in the Crusades. 
and how they described the capture of Jerusalem in brackets, the event preferable to all events. The capture of Jerusalem, the event preferable to all events. So it's like this obsession with Jerusalem, right? I was thinking back, worshipping Ram Hussein, was saying this mysterious obsession with Jerusalem. So when I read this, I started thinking the Normans, right? What's going on here? Who are the Normans? Could it be something there, you know, that these Normans are uh, the factor that then suddenly makes Europe obsessed with Jerusalem? So I decided to find out a bit about the Normans. I started reading, you know, they were descended from Vikings who settled in Normandy. So let me find out more about the Vikings. Where did they come from? Who are they? So the Viking Age started in 795. The very first Viking attack was in Lindisfarne, uh, an island, a very small island off the north east coast of Britain, where the first Viking ships came. They looted the monastery, killed all the monks, stole all the silver, and took the ships back to Norway or Sweden, wherever they came from. So this is 793, the, the, first, the beginning of the Viking Age in Europe. The Prophet died in 632. So I was thinking, okay, this, there could be a connection. If we're saying the barrier was destroyed during the lifetime of the Prophet somewhere around about 630 or so, 620s or 630, these Vikings then suddenly start coming and uh, invading around 793. The timing could could possibly make sense. The Viking hordes poured out of Scandinavia. So Scandinavia is Norway, Sweden, Denmark. That is called Scandinavia. They raided, settled, colonized, penetrated and assimilated into European and Russia as well. The Russians are descended from the Vikings as well. They were known to the Muslims as the Rus. So that was also making sense as well. Then Gog and Magog, Britain, Russia. They all, decided, they all descended from uh, Vikings. For almost 300 years, the, these Vikings were pouring out into Western Europe and into Russia. 300 years is a long time. We're talking <laughs> nine generations, nine generations of people living their whole lives and dying during this time. It's a long time. Nine generations of Muslims, I mean, sorry, uh, Europeans lived with Vikings just pouring and invading. So at this point, I was getting a bit uh, interested in this theory. So I, I had run out of what Google could give me, so I had to go to a serious library. At that time, I was doing my master's in UCL. So I thought, let me go and uh, do some serious reading about the Vikings and, and, and what we know about their, do we know anything about their earlier history around the time of the Prophet and what was, you know, is this a conceivable thing? So I got myself a latte. <laughs> I think it's time for all of us to have a latte now, yeah. and we'll come back inshallah.
after the break. So, where I went into the library. So first, first of all, uh, looking at when did the Vikings come? Is, are we going to find a correlation between the life of the prophets? Also, if we're saying that's when the barrier was destroyed. So I started reading about the Vikings. Where, where did they come from? When did they come? And it turned out that the historians they were saying this is it's a great mystery. Why did these Vikings suddenly start pouring out of Scandinavia at that particular point in history? It's an unsolved mystery that historians have. They've looked at different theories like, was it population pressure? Uh, was it because they suddenly got technology to build these ships that they were coming out? But none of those is backed up by the historical evidence. So, according to this professor, for example, he said, you know, it's one of the genuine great mysteries about this period. Why did these Vikings suddenly start coming out of this, their homeland in the huge numbers and for three centuries, remember, 300 years, nine generations, they were continuing to come out, come out. I mean, genuine great mystery means they haven't got a solution to that problem. Uh, according to another uh, historian, the, the references are there for you, never before or since has such a thing happened from Scandinavia, right? They were moving from Limerick in the west to the Volga in the east, so from Ireland to Russia, uh, from Greenland to Spain. They were going around as pirates, traders, extortioners, mercenaries, conquerors, rulers, warlords, emigrating farmers. There was a massive pouring out of people in the thousands and thousands that went on for all these generations. But what were the causes of this immense wave? Question mark. The question is not answered. So this was making me think, wow, I mean, there's something going on here, you know? Why did the Vikings pour out? These are quotes, not my words here. This is a quote from... <coughs> According to another uh, historian, he said we need a special explanation. Special explanation. We can't find any normal historical phenomena that explain... <coughs> this massive uh, um, flood of people from these countries. So this was making me feel even more intrigued, you know, that they're saying there's, there's no explanation, where did they come from, how did they suddenly come out in these massive numbers. Uh, Farrell, another historian, he actually said, we can never hope to understand this and the causes. In other words, historians have thought and thought and thought, and they've given up. We're never going to be able to get to the bottom of this mystery. So, according to our theory, the barrier was destroyed during the lifetime of the Prophet So my next mission was to find out what was happening in Scandinavia during the period of the lifetime of the Prophet Especially the Medinan period, uh, which is basically you're talking about 622 to 632. Obviously you're not going to find that, but you want to basically, you're looking at the 7th century, right? 7th century. If we can find out the history of the 7th century of Scandinavia that might help us to get to the bottom of what was going on. However, this is when I found out that the Vikings had no written records. <coughs> they were barbarians, remember? They were barbarians. They had no reading or... They had these things called runes 
which were inscriptions, and that's the only stuff we have. These runes, you know, they're like symbols, like... Uh, but they don't have, like, uh, extensive literature, writing, historical uh, accounts and things like that. So, we're actually going into prehistory, because that's the definition of prehistory, is where the written records end, and then you're relying upon archaeological evidence, right? So when we're talking about that 7th century, <coughs> because the Vikings, they only started writing down proper literature about 200 years after they came out into Europe. So they, they wrote these famous sagas, you might have heard of the sagas, uh, especially in Iceland and places like that, the Viking sagas. And they were the stories of their heroes and conquests and things like that. But they were written about 200 years after the first Vikings came out into Europe. So, um, when we're looking at the 7th century, you're basically looking at archaeological evidence to try to find out what was happening in Norway, Sweden uh, during that time. So, what do we know for sure? The first human beings went to that region about 10,000 years ago. We know that this is for sure because before 10,000 years ago, it was an ice age. And there was complete ice there. There was no way anyone could live there. About 10,000 years ago, the ice started melting. Now, one of the anthropologists who studies the archaeological uh, findings, uh, I read in one of her books, really interesting <coughs> about the 7th century Scandinavia. This is what she said, her name is Chesh. She said, if we look at the archaeological evidence, what we find in the 7th century is something dramatic happening in Scandinavia. She calls it the change. Right? Something major happened uh, in that 7th century in Scandinavia. So she describes how the society was before the change, and how it was after the change. And the change happened in that, that round about that time. They can't precise, you know, but it's around that 7th century when the Prophet Sallallahu So obviously this was, uh, I was thinking, SubhanAllah, this is uh, crazy, you know. But um, previous to the change, she said, the Scandinavian farming societies, <coughs> they lived and farmed peacefully with an economic system based on redistribution. And that means yeah, based on sort of distributing amongst the community, right? So it's not greed, greed, everyone just takes for themselves. They share, it's like a communal system, right? You could say more like a socialist type of system of farming. But then, she says, suddenly, this extensive farming system was abandoned and the cultural landscape slowly changed. When the previous farming economy collapsed, a large number of families left their homes. What happened to them and their animals? Question mark, she says. All we know is that in many regions the farms were never rebuilt and the people never returned to their homeland and ancestral graves. So in other words, this is my this is my words now. This same time when the Prophet is saying that the, the barrier has been breached, 
there's something happening in northern Scandinavia where the Vikings come from. The, the old peaceful farming society has been replaced. Uh, they've been, uh, you know, their homes, they've been chased out of their homes, etc. And a different landscape is emerging on the Scandinavian Peninsula. So what was the difference? The new landscape around about, she says, emerged around 700 was different. The houses were smaller. The buyer had room for fewer animals and only special people were buried under mounds. Remember about the Normans, they love hierarchy. So previously everyone was buried. In this new system, only special people in the hierarchy are given the honor of being buried. An intensified agriculture has taken the place of the former system. <coughs> intensified meaning what? When you're trying to get the maximum out of the land, right? So you, in other words, they want more, it's about, it's, it's more towards profit generation. Fewer animals were kept and settled through the, stalled through the winter. New families <coughs> come into power. Emergence of memorial forms and a stratum of landholders who strive to acquire as much land as possible. So these are different type of people. These people are what people who want to acquire more and more land. They want to acquire more and more land. In short, a new economic and political system has been established at precisely that time when the Prophet says that Egypt has been released. Or he didn't say they've been released, let me be accurate. He said the, the barrier has been breached. So for me now I was thinking, wow, okay, so that all fits together. Uh, this is explained that these new people have suddenly come upon uh, Norway and Sweden. And then a hundred years later they're now pouring out into Europe. <coughs> So the timing fits in, the timing fits in for the Vikings uh, to be the Gog and Magog. Now what about the location? Where's the barrier? Yeah, this Before Islam there was a tradition amongst the Jews and Christians that Alexander the Great was Dhulqarnayn. Uh, because remember Dhulqarnayn was given power over the East and the West. And Alexander the Great, the Greek, the Greek uh, emperor, had been given a massive dominion from east to west, you know, from India all the way to Egypt. So Jews and Christians often believed that Alexander the Great was Volkarnay and that he had built a barrier somewhere in the Caucasus region. So this is where the Muslims took this from, this idea that Alexander the Great was Volkarnay. And until today, if you read the Tafsirs, some of them often mention that Dhul uh, Karnayn was Alexander. Uh, how do you say it in Arabic again? Iskandar. Iskandar. That's it. Iskandar. However, now that we know a lot more about Alexander, we know that he was a polytheist. He was an idol worshipper. He claimed to be the son of Zeus and all these sort of things. So for me, that immediately means that the Quran describes him either as a prophet or a righteous man, a believer, you know. Anyway, so, so that, that was just to show, you know, just to let you know that I'm aware of the Alexander issue. 
there was an Abbasid caliph actually sent an expedition of scholars to try to find the barrier around the Caucasus because of this information from the Jewish and Christian tradition. The Quran tells us that the Dhulkarnain went to the setting place of the sun, Maghrib Ashams, and then he went to Matli Ashams, the east. And then he went another direction, but the third direction is not told. But in the Tafsir, they say the third direction was north. If you look at Tafsir of Imam Fakhruddin al-Razi, under Surat al-Kahf, you see he just says, he went north. The third direction was north. <coughs> From previous, you know, in the Quran says he went to the, the, the setting of the sun and the rising of the sun. In other words, to the furthest west and the furthest east. So it would make sense the third time he goes to the furthest north. The furthest north. And this is also why I didn't agree with the theory about the Caucasus, because they're not the furthest north in the world. Now, Sheikh Imran, he says that Dhulqarnain was given world rule. He was a world ruler, one of those rare people in history that Allah gave complete <coughs> dominion over the world. And part of the divine wisdom of that is because this is why he's linked to Yajuj and Majuj. Because Yajuj and Majuj are also given world order, but their world order is a tyrannical world order. It's an atheist world order. Dhulkarnain is given a world order, but it's a righteous world order. It's a world order based on belief and justice. So that's why the two are linked. Uh, and that's why Allah has <coughs> also given him a world order or world rule. That sort of makes sense. If we read the Quran, he went to the furthest rising of the sun and the setting of the sun. Indicating he went as far as you can go. The interesting thing is, around about nine or ten thousand years ago, we were talking about. Remember, it has to be after that time, according to my theory. Um, the continents were joined, and the Americas had not separated completely from Eurasia ten thousand years ago. There was still a bridge, land bridge. So if you went west, you would actually go into the Americas uh, at that time. Anyway, so uh, from this, if, you, if we accept Sheikh Ibrahim's thing that he was given a world rule, and even you know most of the commentators, they, that's why they believe he was either Alexander or Cyrus, because these were great world emperors. But if he was literally given world rule, the, the, the thing about the Caucasus then wouldn't really make sense. Uh, and when, when he went to the west, uh, Sheikh Imran says he went to the Black Sea. And when he went east, he went to the Caspian Sea. And then he, when he went north, he went to the Caucasus. But that's all within a small region. So how does that then mean that he had world rule? For me, that doesn't make sense. <coughs> anyway, so um, what would make sense is if he went to Norway. <laughs> Because that is the furthest north point <coughs> that people are living. It turns out that Norway is the furthest northern land that allows human habitation. Uh, meaning that other countries that are on the same level of northerly um, latitude 
they're frozen over. You can't survive there, like Siberia, Alaska. Only like Eskimos and people like that can live. But Norway is on that same degree of latitude. The reason why people can live in Norway is because of this thing called the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is a current around the ocean that, that actually warms up uh, the land of Norway, so it's not completely frozen over. So Norway is literally the most northern land in the world that people can live as, as a normal, sort of semi-normal uh, way. <coughs> so, and now the next point is that there's massive mountains all the way along Norway. The whole country is a, is a massive chain of mountains. So <laughs> we're looking for mountain barriers. There was plenty of mountains there. The, the, the mountain range is called the Kiel, the Kiel uh, which runs all the way from the south of the country all the way up to the north and it made vast areas of eastern and western Scandinavia almost inaccessible to each other throughout the Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages is when the Vikings are already out. So it was, it was those mountains are almost, there's very few places you can cross those mountains. One of the reasons is because, remember we talked about the northerly latitude. The Gulf Stream warms up the climate. But as soon as you start climbing up the mountains, you lose that warming effect of the Gulf Stream. So those mountains become extremely, extremely frozen and cold. So it makes them even more difficult uh, to cross over. So, other archaeological evidence, they said Scandinavia has been inhabited by two distinct groups of people from the earliest times. So this is going back right into the prehistory, the real archaeology of even before Prophet Times. What are they digging up? You know? It seems like on the other side of the mountains is a different type of people to this side of the mountain. Okay, they call it the Komsa culture and the Fomsa culture. This is from simply from archaeological remains. Seem like they're completely different uh, type of people on that side of the mountains and those on this side of the mountains. The Viking chieftain Thor, he said that he was from further north than all the Northmen, i.e. from the land beyond the mountains. So a lot of the, the early Viking chiefs, or the early Vikings, they came from the land on the other side of the mountains, yeah? on, the, on the other side of the Norwegian coast. Uh, another one, another uh, uh, um, quote there from Offa, he lived furthest north of all the Norwegians, he lived north of the country, alongside the Norwegian Sea. He said that though the land extended a very long way north from there, but all of it is uninhabited, Except in a few places, there are a few Laps. The Laps are the Sami people. These are sort of, they, they live in the proper Arctic uh, snow. The Bible mentions that Gog and Magog will come from the far north, right? In Ezekiel, a leader from the far north. So the, the Bible says that again and again, they come from the north. Uh, the Bible says, you will come from your place in the far north. The Hebrew word means the uttermost part of the north. When the Vikings first started raiding Britain, many people believed that they were Gog and Magog uh, that was prophesied in the Bible. 
This is the map of drawn uh, map of the world by Idrisi, a Muslim scholar um, of the 12th century. Al Idrisi actually drew this map for a Norman king. Yeah, the Normans invaded Sicily, and I think it was Robert, wasn't it? Robert. Robert. So the, the, the Normans came across the Muslims very early on in Sicily, and they were they were very much taking on the scholars and supporting the scholars. So Al Idrisi drew this map of the world, but you can see he's put Yajuj and Majuj up there as well. <laughs> And if you look at the map, obviously it's a slightly odd map because it's uh, the, the knowledge of the time, but you can see Europe here. This is Europe, isn't it? There's Spain, you've got Italy, you've got Greece. Britain's probably somewhere here, but it's not, he doesn't even care about Britain at any time. So, so far, what have we found? The timing fits, uh, the location fits furthest north. There's plenty of mountains up there, right? So all of these things that we know about Yajuja Majuja fitting together. You can imagine some sort of barrier up there in those Norwegian mountains that just blocked off these people because on the other side all they had was the Arctic Ocean. Uh, so there was no way they could go because they wouldn't have had the ships. Right? They only learned how to make the ships later when the barrier was destroyed. Then they built the ships, then they start coming and start invading all of Europe. Language. Because the Quran says, remember the Quran says, when he came to these people next to the mountain, they could, they could barely understand a word. They could barely understand a word. What does that mean? First of all, we don't know who the Quran is describing. Is it talking about the Yajuja Majuj? Or is it talking about the people that asked Don Karnay to help them? Mm. You know, it's not clear. Yeah, in the Quran it says he found on the side, one side of the mountain, a people who could not understand or barely understand a word. They said, is it the same people or is it this, the other people? Can you build a barrier for us? Just. Just an interesting thing was that the, the Viking language, Old Norse, is, according to uh, scholars, almost incomprehensible tongue. Just a reminder from the history course, right? Normans, how they spread throughout Europe, right? Uh, we know about Britain, uh, but don't forget also uh, Italy, Sicily here, we talked about the Muslim, that was a Muslim country. In fact, you know, the first Muslim land ever to be taken by non-Muslims and kept was Sicily. Uh, but they spread throughout Western Europe, uh, infiltrated into the aristocracy, infiltrated into the hierarchy. So what I'm, I'm, I'm implying is that gradually the Normans, who are the descendant of Vikings, they gradually replace most of the aristocracy of Europe. Uh, Britain is an easy one, yeah? We know 1066, the Normans completely wiped away the previous uh, rulers of Britain. Uh, the Anglo-Saxons were either killed or reduced to serfdom. And all of the land was given to Norman lords. 
But what about the French? What about the French? Who were who the people of Charlemagne? What happened to them? Remember, if you remember, the Franks were the, the tribe that settled in modern-day France and Germany. Right? Now, when the Vikings first come, Charlemagne fought against them. Yeah, because he was a powerful emperor. But after Charlemagne's time, the resistance of the French became very much weakened. And the Vikings were able to go right into France, into Paris and the other cities. As we know, they set up a major colony in Normandy, which became the land of the Normans. But, if you look at the actual French uh, monarchy, the Charlemagne's family were known as the Carolingians. The Carolingians. In 987, the Carolingian dynasty comes to an end and a new king comes in place, Hugh Capet, or Capet. And he's the beginning of the Capetian dynasty, which goes on for many generations to be the kings of France. So I was interested to find out who's Hugh Capet. Where does he come from? It turns out he comes from obscure origins. Obscure origin. Now this is normally, being from an obscure origin normally means you don't come from uh, established aristocracy. You know, you're a new, you're a new person that's uh, uh, been trying to come in. So his paternal family are the Robertians. If you trace them back, the only furthest you can go is uh, up to his uh, grandfather, I believe. <coughs> from his grandfather, it disappears. No one knows where these people have come from. So this is a typical Viking Norman pattern. You know, when they've come into European lands, they've infiltrated, they've, they've, they've fought their way to the top. But their ancestry is obscured, right? And sometimes they even try to claim ancestry from other established people within European society. Uh, a great example is the Normans in Britain. The Normans, at first, for several generations, they ruled Britain as French rulers. They spoke French, they despised uh, the English, and the English despised them and hated them. You know, there were Normans were, Norman was like a, a, a brutal, um, the English call them Orca. This is where um, the Orcs come from in the, in the, what's his name? Yeah, yeah. yeah, talking. The word Orc was so feared and uh, they were so brutal and uh, ruthless uh, upon them wherever they conquered. Um, similar reputation that the Vikings have, obviously, as well. So, when these people tended to then infiltrate into the aristocracy or get into positions of power, often it's an embarrassment, you know? Where's your family? Where have you come from? Who are you, King Hugh Capet? Uh, you know, you, you need some sort of um, heritage. So often they would... So the Normans are, are a classic example. The Normans, they were descended from Vikings, but they soon stopped referring to themselves with their Viking traditions, and they took on the French uh, titles like Duke 
and other titles of French nobility. They started speaking the French language, right? So they could get some respectability. Um, so there's a possibility here that this, you know, France is also now, I'm not saying this is, because no one knows where this guy came from, what's his ancestry, but it's possible that he was from fighting descent. And then if you look at Germany, the third main region, so you have Britain, France and Germany, right? They're the three main regions really of Western civilization. Germany we know was composed of hundreds of small fiefdoms, dukedoms, princedoms. So this was the ideal ground where uh, Viking and Norman type of elements could come in and seize power and make their way up as well. So the, we're going to just look at now to finish off some of the attributes uh, of, of the Yajuj and Majuj and do they fit into the attributes of what our theory is that this is uh, European slash Western civilization. Do the attributes that I mentioned fit in? So what does the Quran tell us? The, 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 the biggest attribute the Quran gives us is that they mufsidun fil arm. These yajuj and majuj. Ya dal qablain inna yajuja wa majuja mufsiduna fil arm. These Gog and Magog, they are mufsidun, they're de corrupting, they're destroying the earth. The word mufsid is, is from the grammatical form of ism fa'il. Uh, those people who study Arabic will know that this usually refers to something which is an abiding, abiding characteristic. It's not something that is tied to time, a temporary. Yeah. Ism fa'il, we give it to something that is not temporary, but it's, it's, it, that is their abiding characteristic. There's a lot of uh, descriptions about the Vikings and then even the Normans, as I say, uh, that they were extremely destructive and uh, brutal people. This is a quote from uh, one Englishman when the Viking invasions were taking place in Britain. <coughs> what is uh, if sad, if sad, Mufsidun? There are people who create ifsad. Ifsad is from the fourth form of fasad. You've heard of fasad, even in Urdu we have that word fasad. Right? Ifsad means to cause fasad. Um, now, this is mentioned in other places in the Quran as well. So, for example, when Allah said to the angels, Surely I am making a khalifa on the earth. What did they say? They said, are you going to create someone who will cause fasad? Yufsidu fil-am. Someone who will cause fasad and bloodshed. This was the question that the malaika asked Allah. Why? They couldn't understand why Allah is creating a khalifa. But this Khalifa is going to cause facade and bloodshed. Another ayah of Quran mentions when it is said to them, do not cause corruption in the earth, they say, we're not causing corruption, we're putting things right. Surely they are the ones who are causing corruption, but they do not, they themselves may not perceive that, that they are the corruptors.
Therefore, we can say that if sad is something that human beings do, not just Yajuj and Majuj. Right? Because the Malaika said that human beings are going to... This is a general characteristic of human beings that don't follow divine guidance. They will become Mufsidun. It's not just for Yajuj and Majuj. So what we can say is that Yajuj and Majuj will be the extreme manifestation of this general human tendency. So all human beings that do not follow divine guidance will cause if so. But the Yajuj and Majuj are like the extreme that will come at the end of time. And so when we look at the Western civilization, we see that they have some extreme characteristics in this regard. For, for example, the abandoning of religion altogether. This may be something unique to Western civilization to become complete atheist. Yes, there have been, for example, you might be thinking about the Greek philosophers. Some of the Greek philosophers were atheists. Although the mainstream Greek <coughs> philosophers did believe in a supreme being, there were some philosophers that did go into atheism. But the Greek people were never atheists. You understand? So this may be uniquely the first people as a society civilization that have abandoned uh, belief in God altogether. So with the abandonment of religion altogether, there's absolutely no moral imperative. You've got no reason to follow any moral teaching, except if you choose to yourself. Right? Because there's no consequences, there's no belief in an afterlife, there's no belief in uh, any type of uh, accountability. Just a side note, facade is different to fitna. Dajjal, remember, was mentioned, a shadow fitna in Yuntavat. Dajjal is the worst fitna that is expected. It's a little bit different to facade. Fitna contains the meaning of temptation. So often, uh, say for example, a very beautiful woman may be described as fatana. Uh, in, in books of fit and things like that because it's uh, within the fitna, in other words the dunyawi temptation will be, the jal will bring the materialistic temptations that will attract you a further explanation, more uh, precise explanation of what is ifsad is in Surah Al-Baqarah 205 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says إِذَا تَوَلَّا سَعَافِ الْأَرْضِ فِيهَا wa Allah says, this person who turns away from divine guidance, he then goes around the earth, like he's actually exerting effort around the earth to corrupt the earth. And he destroys agriculture and livestock. So here, Ifsad is linked to destruction, destruction of the land the productivity of the land, the agriculture of the land, and livestock. So, in other words, these people, they don't use the earth sustainably. They don't follow those traditional forms of agriculture where, you know, you look after the earth at the same time the earth looks after you. These Mufsidun, they, they destroy the earth, they drain it of its resources. So this is why for me, 
looking back to that 7th century dis description of Scandinavia, how this change took place to this new system of farming that was intensive farming. You're draining the earth, you know. And these people who wanted to acquire as much land as possible. This for me could be, it could be the birth of capitalism. Right? So this is what capitalism is. To drain, drain, drain and make profit, profit, profit and not think about the consequences, the destruction of the earth and the environment. That in a nutshell is capitalism and you can see the roots of that in these uh, Vikings. So then the Vikings, they start invading all of these lands from Britain to Normandy to Russia. In the Middle Ages we have then the Norman kingdoms, so the Vikings and then the Normans. This is then when we see a new system appearing in Europe, serfdom, what's known as the feudalism. Feudalism starts at this time after the Vikings and the Normans come in the scene. In other words, the vast majority of people in Europe are made into serfs, which is virtual slavery. Talking about probably 90-95% of the population, yeah? They now have these lords that live in these castles and they have these armoured knights and they're subjugating the population. They've reduced them into serfdom. And then, because previous to that, in Europe, Europe the, the, the peasants, the common people, they had a lot of freedoms. They had these common lands, they were known as commons. Forests, rivers. These were places that everyone was free to go and hunt, to get fish from the rivers. Slowly things start changing. Now with feudalism, we see that these new lords, these new landlords, they're very obsessed about getting more and more profit out of the land. So they realize that as long as we let the peasants, the serfs, have their freedom to fish and run around in the forests, they're not going to be that motivated to be uh, growing the crops. So they actually then start stopping that. They start taking the forests, <coughs> taking over the forests and the rivers, privatizing them. Why? Because they want the serfs to produce more crops so they can get more profits. So you can see what's happening, you know, it's a, it's a whole process that's taking place of enslavement of people and uh, draining of resources for profits. In Europe we see for the first time the whole concept of privatization of land. You know, people start building fences around land. This is my land now, you can't come onto this land, you can't go up. Remember how she said in the 7th century that change in Scandinavia? A new stratum of landholders that want to acquire as much land as possible. And so we see this now coming throughout Europe. Deforestation of Europe. So before these colonial empires destroyed the rest of the world, they destroyed Europe first actually. Where were the forests? Britain was a land of forests. You know, now if you fly in the helicopter, you see the old fields, don't you? No only forests left. So these lands were actually deforested first. 
so that people could get more and more land for agriculture, livestock, whatever would make the most money, and that's what they wanted. So then the Crusades take place. For almost 300 years we have these Normans, uh, Western Europe. When the Mongols and later on the Ottomans come into the scene, this is where Western Europeans give up uh, the Eastern movement. Right? Because uh, first of all the Mongols and then later on the Ottomans are too powerful. They're way too strong and the uh, Western Europeans are held back. And this is when they start turning towards the West, trying to cross over the Atlantic Ocean and so on. According to the Bible, the revelations, for 1,000 years, those uh, Satan will be held back. When the 1,000 years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. So the 1,000 years was the... Islamic age that was established by the Khulafa Rashidun, by the Prophet This is what was predicted in the Bible, you know, the thousand years of the Kingdom of God. After that thousand years are over, this is when Gog and Magog are released. In the meantime, Muslims are being expelled from Spain, the Western Europeans have started going around Africa to the Far East. Uh, they discover the Americas, so this now white European Western civilization has now got the Americas. Um, the Americas are, are inhabited by uh, first people or native, sort of people that have not got the advanced technology of the Eurasian, Afro-Eurasian people. So these, these uh, natives are eliminated from the American continent. This description in the Quran, uh, Sheikh Imran Hussein talks about this, that um, when Zulkarnain came to the east, so Imran Hussein said when he came to the east, these people, they had no shelter from the sun, these were these type of aboriginal people, these people that lived very, without advanced technology, they lived very close to the earth, um, so what did Dhulkarnain do? When he went to the west and he found those other people, he said, I will punish the wrongdoers and I will reward the good people. But when he went to the east and he found these people, the aboriginal type of people, the Quran just says, Kadarik. The Quran just says one word, it says Kadarik. Like that. Like that. So what Imran Hussein says, and this is an interpretation, it's not from Tafsir or his mother, he says what it means is that Dhulkarnain left them in their state. He didn't interfere with them. Because these are people that are sort of the people that live very close to nature. You know, they, they, they're so in, in, involved in nature. Uh, the trees have meaning for them. Every tree has a separate identity for them. The animals have sacred meaning for them. You know, and most of these people, if you look at them, they believe in a creator, they believe in God as well. So he says, Dhulkarnay just left them. You don't, you don't interfere with them, you don't do anything to them. 
And so once again the contrast when the Western you know, so Dulkarnain left them in peace. The Western civilization, when they come to them, what do they do? They kill them. They destroy them. They say, these are inferior people. They're, they're pagans. They look, they don't believe in Christianity or this or that. Or that. We need to bring them civilization. They, they wipe them out. Imam Zaid Shakir was the actual chairing the thing. But Muhammad Ali had actually planned the funeral, you know, who's going to come and speak, how long they speak for. He had in detail prescribed what exactly is going to happen after he dies, you know, in that thing. And it was broadcast all over the world, remember, everyone was watching it all over the world. And very interestingly, he had a Native American chief there. You know, this uh, chief, he said a really, I thought I found a really beautiful thing. Now, this great darkness that has happened to us. You must understand that he who had gathered us here, that his road is straight. Peacefully, he will arrive at his land. Sungwaya Disa'e, our creator. It is the same as you call him, Allah. Our Creator is the same as you call him, Allah. So this is um, this is the thing, you know. They went and they killed off these people. They stopped this transatlantic slave trade, where millions of slaves are brought from West Africa to work in the Americas. So, like we said, we're not saying this is a human tendency, if sad, but you can see there's an extremeness here, you know, there's an extremeness in, in all in search of materialism, all in search of profits, a complete, uh, you know, destruction of uh, people, uh, not, not giving any regard to human beings, you know, to, in, in the interest of making that more and more money, really, that's all it is. They want to set up these big plantations so they can make a lot of money from cash crops, um, intensive agriculture. So the type of agriculture they carried out in the Americas and the Caribbean was horrific. Even worse than what they've done in Europe, because in Europe, they live in Europe. They need to preserve the land to some extent. When they're in the Americas and the Caribbean, they so exhausted the land, growing these, you know, coffee and tobacco and these things, that once that land was dead, they had to move to, to other land, and that would take generations for that land to revive. <coughs> you know, they completely killed the land, vast areas of land. Uh, they were buying <coughs> the cattle because they could make a lot of money from beef, right? Deforestation, eliminating the buffalo. Um, all of this stuff was going on. And then eventually North America and Australia they are both, these continents are also privatized. The land grabbing, the fencing. The people before had lived in, in communal, in communal land. There was no 
There was no private land in the Native American or Australian systems. And of course we know about the slaves, you know, so Muhammad Ali is a black man in America. How did the black people get to America? They weren't coming over there, you know, in a nice peaceful manner. They were bought there as slaves, right? Uh, colonialism, the 18th and 19th centuries, where we now have these European uh, countries uh, colonizing all around the world. So eventually by the 19th century, even the Muslim world is slowly subjugated. China is subjugated uh, through the Opium Wars. And then finally there's a scramble for Africa. So uh, for the first time, as far as we know, there's a complete world order. The British, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire. It becomes a complete global uh, empire for the first time that we know of. These are just other examples of the Ifsad, you know, we talked about in the history course, uh, how, how the Opium Wars, the British selling opium to the Chinese, uh, approximately 80 million, 90 million Chinese addicted to opium by the end of that. Once again, all in the name of trade and making profits. Um, India, India, before the British went into India, India was one of, well, actually was the most prosperous country in the whole world. Um, I think something like between one quarter to one third of the world's uh, wealth was generated in India before the British went in there. When the British left after a couple of hundred years, the, the production of India had gone down to 4% of um, the world GDP. So massive uh, <coughs> destruction of Indian industry uh, led to famines in India. In those famines, millions and millions of people died and the British stood back and wouldn't feed those people. Eventually, by the time of the 19th century, the serfs are, serfdom is coming to an end in Europe and slowly slavery is also abolished. And this is done because this, the economic situation no longer requires uh, serfs on the land. You no longer require slaves. It becomes much more economically viable to have people working for peanuts, peanut wages because they're more motivated and you don't get rebellions. <coughs> anyway, uh, so you have this colonization of three continents, subjugation of Asia, scramble for Africa. The British Empire splits into two. Uh, so you get the, the Eastern British Empire and you have the Western British Empire which is called the United States of America very similar to how the Roman Empire split into East and West and the United States of America rapidly expands uh, to the whole of North America. So yeah, this is the nature of the Vikings. Um, once again, this this extremeness, this extreme if sad, you know. So how they were described by early people uh, when they first started coming in, into France the cleric Dudo, he wrote, these people who insolently abandon themselves to excessive indulgence, live in outrageous union with many women, and therein shameless and unlawful intercourse breed innumerable progeny. 
So these were people who had many multiple partners. Uh, they were having, you know, unlawful intercourse, meaning they weren't sticking towards marriage and things like that. Uh, once they have grown up, the young quarrel violently with their fathers and grandfathers or with each other about property. This was something I found interesting because, you know, when the young grow up, they fight against their own fathers and grandfathers over property and wrong. So this was something quite, uh, I found quite unusual because most societies you have a lot of respect for elders within the society. Uh, especially your own father or grandfather, you know, if you look at any, if you look at all these other, you know, that are supposedly barbarian, the Mongols or the Huns or, you know, in history, look at this, you know, what, how did they treat their elders or their parents, you know. This is very, very different, you know, describing the immense number of these Vikings that were coming out into Europe. Uh, Ibn Fadlan was a Muslim scholar. He was sent by the Abbasid Caliph to uh, some expedition, uh, but he was a scholar and he was writing uh, scientific notes upon his journeys. And interestingly, he met a group of what were called Northmen, of you know, Vikings. And this is one of the, even with Western historians, this is one of the best accurate and contemporary records of, of describing these people, the Vikings that they have in historical documents. So what did Ibn Fadlan, how did he describe in them? When you read his description, you may think that actually he's, he's exaggerating because he's so bad, but what historians have found is that his descriptions are actually accurate according to archaeological evidence that they found later. So when he describes the funeral of one of the Viking chiefs, you think, that can't be true. No people could be so barbaric. No people could be so degenerated, you know. And initially, when people found his account, they thought he must be exaggerating, you know, it can't be true. But they've actually found other uh, evidence now to prove that the account he gave was very accurate. So then we can assume that the rest of his descriptions are also accurate. And we know that anyway, from the Muslim perspective, our scholars were very concerned of making accurate recordings uh, of things, not of exaggerating and so on. So what does Ibn Fadlan say about the Vikings that he met? He said they are the filthiest of Allah's creatures. They do not wash after defecating or urinating, nor after sexual intercourse. And they do not wash after eating. They are like wayward donkeys. And they made no attempt to seek privacy <coughs> when they have intercourse with their female slaves. In other words, they do it in public. This is very, very unusual. Very, very unusual for human beings. You know, to just have intimate relations with the opposite sex and you're having, doing it in front of other people. Right? This is bizarre. So, even Fadlan said, a man will have sexual intercourse when he stays at home while his companion looks on. Sometimes whole groups will come together in this fashion, each in the presence of others. These are some of the things we can draw out about the Vikings, having public relations, relations in public, no respect for elders. Uh, so put question marks there. Is this the beginning of individualism in Western societies? Is this the beginning of capitalism?
is this the beginning of atheism? Because we've seen how the Normans, they were, they were using the church, but they were not afraid to be excommunicated from the church. And is this also the beginnings of racism and hierarchy, which became such a feature of Western civilization during the colonial period? By the end of the 19th century, Western civilization was basically abandoning religion altogether. Nietzsche was able to say that religion is finished. Social scientists were describing this as a transition from metaphysical to what they called positivism, which basically meant going from uh, belief in a god to atheism. Individualism, we've talked about before as well. Um, this is something that now anthropologists that study Western civilization are, are studying. Why is it that Western civilization has developed this individualism that is rarely found in other societies but now is becoming globalized through the spread of Western culture around the world? So individualism is this idea of putting the self at the center of everything rather than relations, social relations. <coughs> the self is more important than the relations. So you see this again and again, I mean this is just is being uh, brainwashed into our children when they ever, whenever they watch anything on TV they are being given individualism. Capitalism? Is this where we see the earliest beginnings of capitalism? This endless accumulation of profit and capital? Vikings were famous for their hoards of treasure, they buried them. They just, you know, why are you burying a hoard of treasure? What are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not being used, put to any use. Yeah, they want more, they want to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate and keep that. You know. These people had a lot of energy. Yeah. This person, he, he puts a lot of energy into uh, going around the earth creating facade. The Quran says that, Sa'afil al Sa'i, you know when we go to Safa Marwa, that's called Sa'i, it's hard work. So these people are hard at work with this, what they're doing. They're not, they're not lying around, you know, these normals were serious people. They were full of energy and vigor, you know, they were working hard for their uh, wealth and their status. And everything. Jeremy Corbyn wanted to reduce it to a four-day working week. The British people don't want that. <laughs> they want to work hard in their thing, you know. The beliefs, the atheism, if you look at Viking beliefs, very odd, you know, like I remember I said, even like these primitive people, they believe in a creator. The Vikings are very odd, uh, if you look at their early beliefs. They don't really have a concept of a creator god, even amongst their paganism. Normally even pagans have some sort of creator. Look at their beliefs, read up about them, you know. There's no creator god, they, they basically, they believe but maybe that explains why this then went full circle after going into Christianity and capitalism and they eventually end up back on atheism, you know. Because atheism is one of the, is one of the most, uh, you could say one of the most stupidest positions, you know. It's, it's, it indicates a real lack of intellect to become an atheist. That's why I wonder if that, that, you know, when they said, Allah said, he found a people that could barely understand a word. Well, is it referring to that type of, really like, they're, they're a bit, you know, they're not quite got it, you know, they're not quite understand.
And then finally, the wars, the wars of Kog and Magog. Wars of Kog uh, and Magog. So going back now to the the book I mentioned earlier, Imam Anwar Shah Kashmiri, Rahmullah, in his commentary of Sahih al-Bukhari, where he mentions about Gog and Magog already have been released during the lifetime of the Prophet He also mentions in there a lot of other stuff. The world who remained after 4,291 years. The world will remain orphaned and the wars of Gog and Magog will race therein. And the rest of the days will be the days of the Masih. The days of the Masih, according to Jewish chronicles, are the days of the seal of prophets. And the world will be left orphaned after him without any guide, i.e. prophecy would end. After that, and following much good that would follow the last prophet, would come the bloodshed of Gog and Magog. That is when Jesus would descend. So in other words, after the Prophet you have a period where you have those who follow his guidance. And that was a thousand years as we've seen in other places. But after that is when you have the bloodshed of Gog and Magog. Bloodshed, right? And eventually, this is when Isa will come back uh, during that end of that period. It is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, this is Imam Anwar Shah quoting, that they will emerge against the children of Israel, they will come from the furthest northwest, as many nations. None but Allah knows their number, and cause corruption and destruction, and they will seek Jerusalem. And this is actually, he died in 1932. So this is before uh, the Jewish state is, but, you know, he may have seen the beginning of the British occupation of Jerusalem. It is mentioned in the prophetic hadith that they will head for Jerusalem. But this is not directly linked to the collapse of the barrier. Because he's keep trying to argue, look, it doesn't mean the barrier will be destroyed then. The barrier has already been destroyed in the time of the Prophet but this is something that will happen much later. So if we go back to uh, the Quran, just remind ourselves, I think I already mentioned this. What does Allah say when He will destroy the barrier? When Allah destroys the barrier, just one short statement. On that day we shall leave some of them to surge against others of them. تَرَكْنَا بَعْضَهُمْ يَوْمَ إِذِّنْ يَمُوجُ فِي بَعْضٍ Remember we talk about Yamuj, like a moj, like a wave. There will be, literally, there will always be warring against each other. So after the 1000 years of the guidance that comes to the Prophet that's when the time of Gog and Magog come. Uh, the Vikings were in constant battle against each other. The way that they would fight is, you know, if you read the descriptions in one of the books I read, when two groups of Vikings wanted to fight each other, they would go out one on one boat and one on another boat, right? One group on a boat and another group on a boat. And they would meet in the in the sea or the, the river in the middle and they would be 
just chopping each other across, you know, from one boat until one is completely destroyed and the other one survives. Which is a very brutal way to fight, if you think about it. Because you can't run, you're in the middle of a, you know, a sea or a river, two boats next to each other. And you just have to, you know, just fighting and hacking each other across the thing until one is, is completely finished, you know. One of the most common things we see in the hadith about the signs of the last time. Remember Al-Harj, Al-Harj. The Prophet keeps coming again and again in the hadith about signs of the last day. Bloodshed, bloodshed. So this is one of the major signs, you know, that these Yajuj and Majuj. This was the thing that I found interesting because we always thought about them like they're going to kill everyone. But actually they kill each other more. They fight each other more than they kill. Other people are just a sideshow for them. In the meantime, while they're conquering the world, but they're fighting the more, you know, the British were always fighting the French and the Russians. In the meantime, we're just conquering the whole world as a sort of sideshow. You know, it's crazy, it's amazing. So you have this rivalry, you know, between the Portuguese, the Spanish, the British, the French, the Russians. The main, the main fighting and bloodshed is among themselves. And then the 20th century is the greatest manifestation of this. Because you have the two world wars. These are now, these people completely surging against each other, you know, in an in a immense and very extreme fashion. You know, Germany and then the, the Allies and the Axis or whatever, a massive clash. Never seen before in history, this, this level of slaughter and bloodshed. It's completely new because now it's industrial. Now it's post-industrial revolution. You've got machinery. So we're now killing with machines for the first time in human history. We're killing with machines and bombs and aeroplanes and tanks. So remember the Rus are also descendants of the Vikings. The Rus are descendants of the Vikings. So they're part of this Gog and Magog civilization. And that's where I differ with uh, Sheikh Imran Hussein, who has a different theory about uh, the Russians. Doesn't have to be. In fact, at one time he did believe the Russians were part of Gog and Magog, but later he's changed. Interestingly, some of the earliest accounts of the Vikings in European writing indicate that there were two types of these Vikings. Two distinct types. You read this in the descriptions. One was a tall blonde type and one was a shorter brown haired type. So you had the blonde haired and the brown haired, the early Vikings that were coming into Europe. So once again, I'm not sure, but maybe there's something there going back to Yajuj wa Majuj. Why are they called Yajuj and Majuj? Um, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's the meaning of Yajuj and Majuj in the dictionaries, Arabic, all that stuff. It seems that it's actually a non-Arabic word. Because even the Quran, even the Arabic language contains words that come from other languages. So a classic example is Firdaus. Many of, us, many of you may think Firdaus is actually an Arabic word. It's not, it's actually a Persian word for paradise. But the, it's in the Quran, Jannatul Firdaus. So the Arabic, and this is the nature of any language, languages can borrow words from other languages. Um, so I think Yajuj wa Majuj is an example uh, where these words have come from non-Arabic. And remember, uh, Arabic there's no G 
unless you're from Egypt. There's no G. So, Egyptians, they pronounce J, G. Often the J will become G. Um, Gamil, Gamal, Jamal, Abdullah, Gamal. So, Ya Juj, Mama Juj, Gog, Magog. That makes sense. If you look at the old Norse language, let's have a look at the language. It's full of ads and ogs. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more content like this, go to civilizations.org.uk.